Hi, podcast listeners. I have some wonderful news to share. The critically acclaimed series Famous Fates is back with a brand new season. As of May 13th, the Famous Fates feed will feature season two, titled Falls from Grace, available only on Spotify. Join hosts Carter and Vanessa as they examine the factors, both personal and circumstantial, that turned epic tales of fame into tragic ends of shame. Available for free and only on Spotify, Falls from Grace will release two episodes a week over 12 weeks, each focusing on a different scandalous figure. These stories are utterly gripping and all real. Enjoy this exclusive clip from our new season on the shocking life of film director Roman Polanski. If you want to listen to the full episode, follow Famous Fates free and only on Spotify. Forty-three-year-old Roman Polanski parked in the driveway of Jack Nicholson's home on Mulholland Canyon. He turned to the passenger beside him. Not one of the city's zeitgeisty models or actresses, but rather a 13-year-old girl, should they head inside. It was a rhetorical question. Of course they would. Samantha Gailey, the muse of the director's latest photo shoot, followed him through the front door. Nicholson wasn't home, but his housekeeper was kind enough to let them open a bottle of champagne from the fridge. Polanski's beady eyes wandered back to his camera and then to Gailey. They should get back to taking photos. The natural light was evaporating as the sun dipped below the Hollywood Hills. He beckoned for them to go to the back deck, out to the pool and jacuzzi. A nice aesthetic. Polanski's directorial eye knew best, right? Not this time. This was his worst idea in years. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. And this is Season 2 of Famous Fates, Falls from Grace. This season, we're examining once-revered historical figures whose stories ended in less than savory ways. Every week, we're bringing you two episodes examining the lives of two fascinating people in the same industry. They were beloved for their incredible accomplishments until they were reviled for their sins. You can listen to all ParCast Originals on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on Hollywood heavyweights, and today we're covering Polish-French film director Roman Polanski, a man whose trauma and lurid deeds could have been plucked from one of his own movies. Now, while you may love Rosemary's Baby and Chinatown, this might make you reconsider what you deem a cult classic film, namely because of the reputation of the man who made them. The portrait of a dark-haired, brooding man under the waxy palm trees of Los Angeles could have opened any neo-noir in the late 1960s. Compact but shrewd, by that time, 34-year-old Roman Polanski was a long way from the war-stricken Poland of his youth. His current battle in the City of Angels wasn't physical, but artistic. He was working through post-production on his latest film, The Fearless Vampire Killers. 
and Polanski didn't like to be told what needed cutting. His directorial success in Europe over the past five years had fused a certain aplomb to his 5-5 frame. It had taken but one splashy debut feature, 1962's Knife in the Water, to pave the way for his first Academy Award nomination. Even from afar, the praise for his filmmaking hooked Polanski up to the IV of Hollywood. So what if his first wife, a Polish actress, left him the year before Knife in the Water came out? Polanski simply doubled down on catching his rising star, releasing his next films, Repulsion and Cul-de-sac in 1965 and 1966. Actors and actresses were clamoring at his door for roles. Even Polanski's future wife, Sharon Tate, had come along through a bona fide casting call. They'd talked vampire killers over dinner one fateful night. While the final cut was less than stunning, the studio edited vampire killers to smithereens. It was a drop in the bucket. By that point, Roman had tasted the luxuries of Hollywood, and he had the fortitude to prove he could make another hit film, even if he thought the standards that American films catered to were a bit unsophisticated. Roman was packing for a Vermont ski vacation when a call came from Robert Evans, Paramount Pictures' head of production. Evans had a film he wanted made and wondered if Polanski might be interested in directing. The two set a meeting for when Roman was back in town. And soon, that meeting found a winning new project in Polanski's hands, an Ira Levin novel titled Rosemary's Baby that was soon to be published. The concept was good. There was no denying it. Roman read through the meaty stack of pages in his hands quickly. The very next day, he called Evans back. He was in. When production on Rosemary's Baby began the summer of 1967, the process itself was Roman's baby. And Thea Silbert, one of Polanski's close friends, recalled his approach as controlling, to say the least. Roman, like all great filmmakers, was a dictator, she said. A benevolent dictator. Still, the once temporary sojourn to Los Angeles was seeming permanent. Polanski was in love with his girlfriend, Sharon Tate, and they were rapidly making themselves a life. There was no denying that California offered the couple both creative resources and fame. Some likened them to the John and Yoko of Hollywood. According to his autobiography, Polanski said, I never knew life could be a luxury. A luxury that was certainly unimaginable three decades before. At just eight years old, growing up in Poland, Polanski survived the Holocaust. He lost one parent to Auschwitz and the atrocities of Nazi Germany. Yet Polanski's one respite in those harrowing years, sneaking into town to see movies, had stayed with him. His compass had steered him well thus far, all the way to California. And there he was no longer the timid young boy perched on the edge of his seat. He was the director holding the eyes and ears of a city that just wanted to be entertained. Despite the glamour, there were inklings of Roman's inability to compromise. Namely, before he and Sharon Tate ever married, friends knew of their closed-door arguments about Polanski's monogamy, or lack thereof. He wanted to see other women, if he desired, without being chastised. 
Tate was heartbroken, but worried if she refused, he'd leave her altogether. It wasn't the first instance of Roman being abrasive in their relationship. When they first met, he'd been extremely volatile in his affections, to the point of cruelty. According to writer Sam Wasson, over the course of those first two dinners, Polanski would reduce Sharon to the size of her own waning self-esteem, and then, in the days and nights to follow, he would admonish himself for doing it. Still, Polanski fed off attention, and Tate's devotion to him likely softened his behavior. Knowing that she could either have Roman with his wandering eyes or not have Roman at all, Tate quietly accepted this new reality. She leaned harder into showing him she could be the ideal wife. Less than six months later, in January of 1968, the two married in London, then set about warming their new home back in Los Angeles. Five months later, in June, Rosemary's Baby hit the U.S. box office to runaway success. As critics cite IndieWire reported in 2012, it grossed $33 million off a $3 million budget. Adjusted for inflation, that's $221 million from a $19 million budget. Polanski was heralded as a lord of horror and the subtle occult. The film would be nominated for two Academy Awards, a fine taste of success that stoked Roman's ego. But despite his touchstone horror film and doting new wife, who soon announced she was expecting, Polanski struggled to be chivalrous in the wake of good fortune. He distanced himself from Sharon Tate, making excuses to extend his stays in London, always under the guise of work. His delay in returning to his wife's side would have tragic consequences. As Polanski waited for a new visa to return to L.A. in August of 1969, his world would be shattered for the second time in his life. On August 9, 1969, a pregnant Sharon Tate was brutally slain, along with four other people in their Los Angeles home, by Charles Manson cult members. The night of the murder, Polanski was thousands of miles away in London prepping a film. Distraught, he traveled back to California to clear up matters after her tragic death. Being in Los Angeles, though, made him uneasy. The media kept Polanski under the spotlight and made stark comparisons between the gruesome depravity of the murders and his own movies. Time magazine said the bloodshed was as grisly as anything depicted in Polanski's film explorations of the dark and melancholy corners of the human character. For all the hands that had once clapped for Rosemary's baby, they now pointed fingers at its similarities to Tate's murder. It was clear that his work was being inextricably linked to his personal life. While he may have welcomed or even encouraged such speculation in earlier years, Polanski was ill-prepared for this brutal new reality. His behavior was now being monitored and analyzed, his films were now being dissected for hints of murder conspiracies. Seeking respite, he fled first to Rome and then to a chalet in the Swiss mountain town of Gestad. But even being sequestered from the public eye did little to negate Roman's ingrained desire for relationships that were far from appropriate. He surrounded himself with young teenage women in the Swiss ski town of Gestad. 
In his autobiography, published in 1984, he didn't hide his actions, remembering the finishing school capital of the world with hundreds of fresh-faced, nubile young girls of all nationalities, Kathy, Madeline, Sylvia, and others whose names I forget, played a fleeting but therapeutic role in my life. They were all between 16 and 19 years old. They took to visiting my chalet, not necessarily to make love, though some of them did, but to listen to rock music and sit around the fire and talk. This was one of the earliest blatant examples of Roman having no moral issues with who he cast his eye upon. Notice, though, that Polanski underscored, even in his book, that the girls were at least 16, Switzerland's minimum age for consensual sex. Polanski's grief and feelings of despair likely promoted his next film, 1971's Macbeth, which features a grisly portrayal of the murders of Lady Macduff and her children. Still, the film's watery commercial performance left Polanski unsatisfied. But what could you expect from a rendition of Shakespeare that listed Playboy's Hugh Hefner as an executive producer? His next feature was equally unaffecting. According to Sam Wasson, 1972's What? played out as a raucous, absurdist sex comedy whose very title was a blank check to critics. With no hit films in the pipeline, Polanski was growing strapped for cash, and his ego desperately needed another big success. Luckily, in 1973, the boon of Paramount's Robert Evans would again come for Polanski. Evans had another script he wanted made, and it could be damn good with the right amount of finesse. But the film would have to be made in L.A. Polanski didn't hide his reluctance to return to California, but Robert Evans knew he had a ringer, especially if Polanski brought the same touch he did to Rosemary's Baby. The exec sent the script to Polanski's residence in Rome for a rewrite. It was Chinatown. A flurry of meetings and transatlantic flights that followed left Polanski with a choice in the summer of 1973. With the promise of a pristine house rental on Sierra Mar Drive in the hills above West Hollywood, and an agreement to keep rewriting Chinatown with its original scribe Robert Town, Polanski knew he should stay. And after shoving down the haunting memories from four years prior, he did. The choice was one that would yield 11 Academy Award nominations. Polanski's 1974 film Chinatown was a sultry neo-noir. Critics called it groundbreaking, near perfection, and one of the greatest movies of all time. Mind you, those adulations are still being used in the present. Chinatown carved out the pedestal that Polanski had long dreamed of. Not to mention, the film brought his leading man, pal Jack Nicholson, to front and center as the it man of American cinema. The accolades and salivation over the film blurred into Polanski's personal life. Yet again, the artist was no longer separated from his work. Many of those who had speculated about Sharon Tate's murder and Polanski's aptitude for the occult were praising Chinatown. It created a turbulent feedback loop in which colleagues were friends and parties could be future plot lines. In his autobiography, Polanski claimed the social environment was exhausting to navigate. He turned to intimate relationships for superficial distractions. 
Yet these relationships were more early warning signs that Polanski wasn't capable of engaging responsibly at that time, let alone with intimate partners. This played out, unfortunately, all too clearly when in 1976, Polanski reportedly had an affair with actress Nastasia Kinski. She was just 15 years old. He was 43. Yet Polanski made no indication that he was bothered by the age difference. She continues to deny that it was anything more than a flirtation. Truly, it was an uncomfortable warning sign of what was to come. Remember, you can find Falls from Grace right now in the Famous Fates feed. To finish this episode and hear more, follow Famous Fates free and only on Spotify.